of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So today is the fourth Sunday in Lent, which is um, often called Laetare Sunday from the uh, Latin word that means rejoice. And it's one of the two Sundays when we ease up a little bit on the penitential violet by mixing a little bit of joyful white, which gives us these rose-colored vestments that um, some of my brother clergy are afraid to wear. So, <laughs> But we, we do not have a problem with that here at All Saints. <laughs> um, so today's our Lenten Rose Sunday. We have one in Advent, one in Lent, and we're at about the halfway point of Lent. That's what this is all about. We ease up a little bit, and we have a reminder of the uh, joys to come in Easter at about that halfway point. Now, that, that title, Laetare, or Rejoicing Sunday, it comes from that traditional introit text that we just sang from Isaiah 66 and Psalm 122. Um, as a reminder from our English gradual, it is rendered like, this. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be ye glad for her, all ye that delight in her. Exult and sing for joy with her, all ye that in sadness mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. I was glad when they said unto me, we will go into the house of the Lord. So in our introit, we mourn with Jerusalem, but we look forward to the joyful restoration of her. Jerusalem is often called the holy city, largely because it's the place where God dwelt with his people in the temple. Jerusalem was the place where God had placed his presence and his name and the place where the Israelites would meet him with worship and in sacrifice. Yet you don't have to look too far in the scriptures to see that Jerusalem had a lot of idolatry, a lot of corruption, a lot of unholiness in the holy city. And the same is true today. Um, as you know, several of us made pilgrimage to the Holy Land last month. And in such a trip, Jerusalem is always the climax of the journey, uh, the climax of the pilgrimage. It's where we will go on the Via Dolorosa, following in the steps of the Lord as he goes to his crucifixion. We pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. We preach to each other on the southern steps. We just generally follow the Lord in the Holy City. But... I, for one, find Jerusalem to be paradoxically stressful. <laughs> Just as there were money changers cheating the pilgrims in Jesus' day, so there are vendors who would swindle the unsuspecting pilgrims today. Our tour guide told us about one lady that paid $20,000 for a piece of the true temple. It was just a rock. That sort of thing happens all the time. Just as there were tensions in Jesus' day between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, between the Jews and the Romans, so we have all sorts of tensions between uh, competing religious and political groups in Jerusalem today. Even among the very religious, it's easy to see the kind of bondage that caused Jesus to weep over the city. Um, I recall, for example, a, uh, uh, several times certain ultra-Orthodox Jewish men, the Hasidim, who would literally run from place to place in the city out of fear of looking at a woman. And then um, it's very hard to find a priest, even among the Christians, who um, actually are there every day, um, that is not grumpy and gloomy. It's a tough thing being in that city. The truth is, Jerusalem as it is and Jerusalem as it has been is not yet what it will be. Jerusalem, like the rest of creation, needs redemption. 
In our Latare text and in much of scripture, we see that Jerusalem is presented as a symbol or a type of the kingdom of God, the world to come. We look forward to redemption. We look forward to the end of our exile. We look forward to the banishment of sin and its curse. We look forward to being in God's presence and in his house forever. Similarly, in our epistle reading from Galatians 4, we see this contrast between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. So please turn your Bibles to Galatians 4.21. You can also find this in your prayer book on page 130, Galatians 4.21. St. Paul writes, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. So in in many ways, our reading today starts in the middle of a thought. Uh, The entire epistle to the Galatians was addressing the Galatians' embrace of legalism, which is a false gospel that essentially says we might be brought into God's family by grace through faith, but we are kept in God's family by our performance. And specifically, the Galatians had fallen into a form of legalism that is uh, often called Judaizing. And in this form of legalism, the uh, specific issue is that obedience to the Torah, obedience to the, to the works of the law in the Old Testament are going to supplement God's grace. For the Galatians, the Lord Jesus had become something of an afterthought. He was just the, ter- the cherry on top of the Sunday. The real thing that really mattered was obedience to the Torah, obedience to the law of Moses and his traditions. St. Paul has then, by this point, spent three and a half chapters making the case that the new covenant changes our relationship with God's law. And just before our passage, Paul says that under the new covenant, we have been adopted as God's children not merely his servants. And with the coming of Jesus, God's only begotten son, we adopted sons have then reached legal maturity and have access to our spiritual inheritance. So as such, we're not slaves to the world, to the flesh, or even to the law. Rather, we're free because we have a new relationship with God. In our passage, St. Paul makes his case against legalism, ironically, by making an allegory from the law of Moses itself. You want to talk about the law? Okay, let's talk about the law. So in Genesis 15, God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son despite his old age. Now, God had promised to make himself a chosen people from that son and that son's descendants, which is ultimately going to culminate in the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, And through him, the whole earth would be blessed. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were very old. You all remember the story. And Sarah's childbearing years were way, way behind her by this point. So Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands. And she gives Abraham, her handmaid, Hagar, to be a surrogate mother. 
So Hagar would have Abraham's son on Sarah's behalf. Abraham and Sarah basically tried to make God's supernatural promises happen using natural means, fleshly means even. And at first it seems to work. Hagar does bear Abraham a son. Uh, His name is Ishmael. But a few chapters later, God appears to Abraham again and reestablishes his covenant with promises of descendants through Sarah. While God promises to bless Ishmael, Hagar's son, it's not through Ishmael that the covenant would be carried out. But rather, it's through Sarah's son, who would be named Isaac. God does keep his promise. Sarah conceives Isaac, and Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah when they're well past their 90s. Um, I'm hoping that doesn't happen to Heather and I. <laughs> what do you say after that? I mean, <laughs> St. Paul tells us in our, in our epistle that this Old Testament story can be seen as an allegory for the way that the New Covenant promises play out. You cannot obtain God's promises using fleshly means. You can't attain God's promises by taking matters into your own hands. Nor can we attain the promises of the New Covenant by means of the Old Covenant's law. And in fact, if we want to attempt to do this, we become enslaved to the law. Because we cannot keep the law's perfect demands, we end up indebted to the law with no escape. We become, like Hagar, bondsfolk. Paul says that we are not to look to our own performance. We're not to look to our own keeping of God's law, which is symbolized here by the earthly Jerusalem. But rather, we're to look to the promises of God, which are symbolized by the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul then quotes from Isaiah 54. He says, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. One of the reoccurring themes in Scripture is God showing pity on the barren and then giving them miraculous children. Sarah giving birth to Isaac is one such example. The same thing happens with Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and then with her son, Jacob's wife, Rachel. In short, the wives of all three patriarchs, um, they had miraculous births. We see it again as we move forward in the Old Testament with Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, who would be so pivotal in anointing David and bringing about uh, the Old Testament kingdom. God carrying out his plans through miraculous pregnancies. This is a major theme in scripture, and it culminates in the Blessed Virgin Mary conceiving our Lord. And again, we're going to be celebrating that this Saturday um, in the, uh, with communion for the Feast of the Annunciation. Similarly, the church is a mother who gives birth by miraculous conception. The scripture says that we, her children, We're dead in our sins and trespasses, but God gave us new life in his son, Jesus. Let's look at verse 28 in our epistle. Paul says, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, 
but of the free. So back in Genesis, Hagar and Ishmael had a problem with Sarah and Isaac. Before Ishmael was even born, Hagar was, began mistreating her mistress Sarah because Hagar had conceived and Sarah was barren. And because of this, Hagar is kicked out of the household. But eventually she returns and she's reconciled to Abraham and Sarah, only to have Ishmael do the same thing to Isaac when they're kids. This time, Hagar and Ishmael are dismissed for good. And God does promise Hagar that Ishmael will be blessed on Abraham's account, but we don't hear from them again until Abraham's death when Isaac and Ishmael bury their father. Again, St. Paul says this is an allegory. The nature of the flesh is to run roughshod over the spirit. That's part of why we have Lenten fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. We are disciplining the flesh to go against its fallen nature. We're training the flesh here to be subject to the spirit. And of those of y'all that have children in the atrium, you might remember that they are taught that we are making room for God with our Lenten disciplines. It's a really good way to think about it. But if we're trying to attain God's promises by our own performance, we're going to lose sight of those promises and we're going to focus on the performance. If we think we can win God's favor by obedience, it's our obedience or rather our pretended obedience, that's going to end up being elevated and we're going to lose sight of God. That's the nature of legalism. That's the natural tendency of our inner Pharisee, which is something that almost every religious person, including me and probably most of y'all, if not all of y'all have. Scripture tells us instead that the only way to true obedience is to trust in God's promises. Our good works are a byproduct of our faith. It's not the other way around. And that is what the running Hasidim in Jerusalem were missing. You can't overcome lust or any other sin by outrunning them. It doesn't work that way. You need a change of heart. You need a change of affections. And that only comes through the Lord Jesus. Even when it comes to our religious practices, the flesh must be subjected to the spirit. If we focus on the law, we're never going to keep it. Ultimately, Paul is saying that the Christian life is one of freedom, not bondage. The life of faith is not to be obtained by bondage to the law. Now, you would think that this approach would lead to lawlessness and wickedness. All that does is make a bunch of lazy and and rebellious Christians. But St. Paul, in the next chapter, he tells us that's not the case. He tells us that we should not use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. Rather, the freedom that we have is to result in love for God and love for our neighbor. That's the result of proper freedom. By way of analogy, knowing that your wife loves you and will never leave you shouldn't lead you to mistreat her, but rather should lead you just to love her more, right? And the same is true with God's love and God's promises. When we think of those promises, we can see that they are indeed a cause to rejoice. The miraculous new birth God has wrought in us brings us to a true Laetare Sunday, rejoicing Sunday. And it also brings us relief. The other name for the fourth Sunday in Lent, one you don't see as much nowadays, but was a lot more common um, in prior generations, especially in English circles, is Dominica Refrectionis, the Sunday of Refreshment based on our gospel reading of the feeding of the 5,000. When Christ sets us free, he also feeds us. 
He feeds us with his word, and he feeds us with himself in the sacrament. Again, this is all by his grace. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. It comes purely out of his love for us. As we prayed in the collect, grant we beseech the almighty God that we, who for our evil deeds do worthily deserve to be punished, by the comfort of thy grace may be mercifully relieved through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we move into the second half of Lent, don't let the rigors and disciplines be the main focus in your, in, in, for their own sakes. Rather, look to God and to his grace. Focus on his love for you and remember that those disciplines are only there to help us love him in return, to help us have proper love. That's what they're there for. Look to God's promises and you will be relieved. After all, St. Paul tells us, you are a child of the promise, not a child of bondage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.